The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone. I'm hoping you're having a great Monday and we have a really interesting show for you all today. Um, We're going to be talking with... Um, Corin Zelkis, who is the author of two books, one of which you might be very familiar with. Is, her first book was called Smashed, um, and her new book is called Fury. And we're going to be talking about both books, but it, essentially what we're going to be talking a lot about is how women experience anger and how anger gets um, kind of uh, acculturated and that we grow up um, kind of buying into whatever we're taught about anger. And um, for some of us, it's been very healthy, and for some of us, it's been not so healthy in terms of how we deal with our anger. So welcome, Corin, and thank you for being our guest today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, maybe we could begin by um, sharing with folks a little bit about your first book called Smashed. Yeah, I um, wrote my first memoir, Smashed, as a 23, and it was my first year out of college, and I was living in New York and working as a secretary and just quitting drinking. Um, and so, I, well, I, I wrote Smash for a couple of reasons. One was more personal. As I was quitting drinking, I became really preoccupied with this old memory, and it was something I hadn't thought about in years but suddenly couldn't stop thinking about, which was this night that I had my stomach pumped when I was 16, and it was my first blackout ever. It was my first really close call ever, and I'd sort of woken up in my parents' house the next day still wearing a hospital gown with the ID bracelet still on my wrist with just no recollection of what had happened. Um, and uh, the thinking back on that memory, it was really pretty haunting. Um, and so I sat down and wrote um, just a, a, a little short piece based on my experiences um, But culturally during that time, I just graduated from Syracuse University. I was hearing so much in the news about how girls like myself were drinking younger and so much more than uh, any other women really had, much more than our mothers, more than sometimes our older sisters. And this had really just happened since the 1990s. And I just didn't agree with the justifications. All these sociologists and psychologists and the journalists were reporting that girls like myself were drinking more because we were so liberated and self-confident and because we wanted to prove we could do anything the boys could do. Um, I thought that was a little bit nuts because I could already see that. Drinking to me had many times been an expression of my unhappiness or my lack of confidence, particularly in social situations. So um, when I wrote Smash, I really wanted to offer something like the young woman's perspective on the type of drinking that happens in high school and in college. And so when I was growing up, you know, basically um, women didn't have a whole lot of choices when we got out of school. You know, you could be a nurse, a teacher, um, secretary. Right. And um, and I think that now when I see my daughter's generation, there are 
so many choices and so much pressure to do it all that I think that it must be very overwhelming. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, and there's a question of timing. Everyone wants to have a career but also have have the family and and find romance, and and there is a lot of stress there. Um, I remember feeling that stress even um, as I was in college and, of course, directly afterwards when I was struggling to find a job. What made you decide to stop drinking? Oh, I was my um, uh, my real like rock bottom moment was I was um, uh, 23. Right before I, I quit drinking, I was down um, in the meat packing district with a friend, with my roommate, um, who I'd known from college, and uh, we weren't drinking very often compared to how we used to when we were at students at Syracuse. But we were still um, look forward to Friday nights and just go out and get drink until we were absolutely obliterated. So we were down at this club in the meatpacking district and um, waiting to hail a cab. It was like 3 a.m., and these two men jumped into it before um, we could. And to sort of settle the fight with them, we shared the cab uptown. Um, you know, it was one of those moments where like, I was sitting in the front seat with the driver and turned around, and my friend was making out with one of the guys and wanted to continue the party to go hang out in their apartment. And I certainly didn't want to leave her alone. So we went inside. I woke up there the next morning. We were together. We were fully clothed. Nothing had happened to us. Um, the guys were long gone. It was a beautiful apartment, um, very fancy, very expensive, but we had, I had no idea in the city where I was. I kept thinking if um, these guys had turned out to be something out of American Psycho, I wouldn't have had a, um address to give a 911 operator. I didn't know their names, and it was really horrifying. It really scared me in a way um, that I hadn't been scared before that. I think by comparison, I'd had far worse experiences as a student at Syracuse, bad blackouts, um, things like date rape, sexual assault. Um, but I was always around students, and I was always in a, you know, if I woke up in a college dorm room, it was still a place that was populated by kids. Um, and so, it, unfortunately, it, it really didn't feel the dangers until I got out of school and was drinking in a strange city instead of my college town. I think it's really important to um, let everyone know that you were very active in helping to raise consciousness around underage drinking. Oh, uh, yeah, that, definitely. And that you worked with the uh, U.S. Surgeon General. Yeah, I was so flattered. Um, uh, and, and with actually um, uh, the Leadership to Keep Children Alcohol-Free, which is a group of gov- governors' wives um, who, who make lots of um, efforts in terms of prevention, talking to students, talking to um, parents. Um, and, and really teaching people when they ought to be talking to kids about alcohol and how to open up that conversation. Um, but I was really flattered when the Surgeon General revealed his call to action to prevent underage drinking. A few years ago, I did get to go down to Washington and um, help him do that. So what are some, um, how, how do we prevent underage drinking or reduce it? Well, I think it's really important to um, talk to kids early. I think, you know, like my parents, a bunch of parents wait until um, kids are in high school, and we sort of know statistically now that half of all eighth graders have tried alcohol. Kids are taking their first drinks in junior high. We also know the younger kids are when they first start drinking, the more likely they are to um, run into problems with um, binge drinking and with um, alcoholism. Statistically, the longer you wait to drink as a um, teenager, the less likely you are to experience those things. So um, I think to talk to kids early, I think, uh, you know, it's not inappropriate to talk to a 12-year-old about um, the effects and dangers of alcohol. I think to not wait until parents catch kids drinking. 
um, uh, to not just have one conversation, but to keep reinforcing it. And I think we get so hung up sometimes on the dangers of drinking and driving in America, which, of course, are devastating. But um, no one ever taught me, for instance, what alcohol poisoning was until I nearly alcohol poisoned myself. Um, no one really talked about how alcohol affects girls' bodies differently than men. Um, you know, we're, we're more likely to have alcohol um, and alcohol poisoning. We're also more likely to black out sooner. Um, on average, I think it takes girls five drinks to pass out, and it takes guys nine. Um, so to just really talk about the full, all the effects and consequences of drinking. I think the other thing, um, one of the things that um, has always kind of driven me over the edge is that I know a lot of parents will say, well, my kids are going to drink anyway. They can drink at my house. And and they will allow underage drinking parties just because they think that that's preventing um, something. And um, what, I've, what I've learned through some research shows that the best deterrent um, is parents saying, you don't do this, and then you model for them that behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there are lots of influences out there, things we see in, in movies and everything else. But, of course, parents, kids are paying attention to the kinds of drinking uh, parents do in their own house. And I think it makes me really sad, too, that um, it seems that futile that people think, oh, we don't know how to prevent this. We can't stop it. We might as well let it go on in our house. Um, and I, 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 I don't agree with them that strategy either, and it's actually really illegal, and we do see lots of parents being prosecuted um, in certain states now for providing the keg for kids. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's not the way to go. Right, right. Um, so uh, did you go into treatment? How did you get sober? I didn't. I think um, in retrospect, it, it would have been really good for me to just, um, even just to begin by going to see a therapist around the time that I was quitting drinking, um, who, of course, I'm sure would have directed me to AA. I actually, like, went on, went in on my own for years. Um, then I hit a hard time around, like, 26, 27, where I actually did um, attend some AA meetings. I don't go to them anymore. Therapy really helped me because um, I, I think for me, the, the drinking was just the symptom. Um, there was a whole lot going on emotionally underneath that I really need to deal with. Um, I think before we get into um, some of the more um, personal things in your book, Fury, um, what made you decide to write a book about anger? Oh, I, I, well, that is the question, I think, um, which I couldn't answer for a long time, but it was like um, my subconscious chose the topic. I, a few years after Smashed, which was really an emotional writing process for me, um, and it was very personal, um, and it revealed some things that were a little bit embarrassing. I thought, there's no way I'm going to write another memoir. I'm going to, um, I got into my head that I was going to write this um, oh, journalistic book of essays exploring American attitudes about anger. And if I go way back, it sort of started, um, a friend years ago had said, uh, you know, the female friendships that you write about in Smashed um, are really intimate. You're, you always have very close relationships with them, the girls who appear in your book, um, but they always t ended kind of badly. Um, and there's something interesting there. Maybe you want to write a book about female friendship. Um, and so it didn't really appeal to me, but I, I sat down, I gave it a shot, and it occurred to me that I wasn't trying to write about friendship at all. I was really trying to write about conflict. Um, and more often the fact that there really wasn't much conflict in my female friendships. 
Um, if anything, there was a lot of passive aggressiveness, and um, eventually we just drifted apart instead of fighting. Um, so that was really the starting point. I thought, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about American anger. I'm going to try to write about it from the female perspective, see what remedies are out there, what attitudes there are about it. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that I latched on to the topic because I had no idea how to deal with anger, especially now that I wasn't using alcohol as an escape from it. Um, what was your family's reaction to Smashed? It was um, really difficult to show them Smashed. I um, showed it to uh, my mom and my dad um, when I had the first bound copies, the proofs from the printer. And I had gone up to visit them over Labor Day, and I gave it to my mom right before I got back on a bus to New York City. And I said, here, please don't read it until I'm gone, because I, I just don't know if I can be here while you read it. Because um, I did. I went to school five hours and um, 500 miles away from home. And I never called home when I was drunk or hungover or wondering what had happened the night before. I only called home when I had good news to report and had aced an exam um, or had something wonderful going on in my life. So I, I didn't share with them a lot of the experiences I've heard about in Smashed. And um, it was a difficult read for them. I think um, uh, my mom was really upset to hear about how depressed I felt in college, um, uh, how hopeless. I think, of course, the scenarios uh, regarding incidents with alcohol and sex were really uncomfortable for all of us. I just sat in my apartment cringing thinking about my dad reading them. Um, but we were, I think it did help that I'd come through. I was on the other side. I wasn't drinking anymore. Um, so they knew that part was behind me. Um, and they were really supportive as I was publishing Smashed. Um, that really speaks a lot to um, your, your parents' sense of resilience because I know as a, as a parent it would be hard to, to read some of that stuff from my daughter's perspective. Yeah. Um, it, it's, and I also imagine just really terrifying because some of the calls were, were so close. Um, you really don't want your mind to go and imagine what would have happened if things had gone another way. And as a parent, kind of thinking about you have your own daughter, what do you think your advice to her is going to be? Oh, well, I mean, people are always always say, oh, are you going to show her Smash? Are you going to show her your memoirs? Um, I think, of course, I'm, I'm going to have to because they're out there in the world. Um, I'm going to have to be honest with her. People might ask her about them at school. Um, so I think I, I, as a parent, don't have much choice. I'm going to have to be really upfront about my experiences with alcohol, and I'm just going to have to use them as a cautionary tale. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those people to make the choice whether I'm going to divulge or whether I'm going to hide it. Um, but I think we're, we're going to talk about it early. We're going to talk about it repeatedly, I'm sure. Um, uh, but in the end, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give her all the information I think um, she, she deserves. And we'll be right back with more um, with Corin. And if you have any questions, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Today, our guest is Corin Zelkis, and her first book was Smash, Story of a Drunken Girlhood, and her newest book is called Fury, and there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a memoir, and it's a tale about her own journey to understand and learn to deal with anger, and in doing so, you've done research on anger and the history I did. Of, of anger. Can you share with us? Well, I did. I found? started off, well, actually, I buried myself in research in the beginning because I really didn't want to believe that I'd latched onto this topic because it had anything to do with me. I really wanted to think I was this anthropologist out there studying angry Americans. Um, so I, I did. I turned to every book I could get my hands on, you know, whether it was um, studying the Stoics or whether I was um, looking at sociology, did a lot of linguistics research because I really um, wanted to find out if we say, when we say I'm angry in this culture, if it translated in other nations in the world. Um, I think some of the most interesting research I found um, came out of there's really only one sociological book about um, Americans' attitudes about anger over time, and it's this very wonderful but a little bit dense book um, by Peter and Carol Stearns called Anger, the Struggle for Emotional Control in American History. And what I did find um, in that book was this idea that anger is something to be managed and controlled is a very American idea that doesn't translate um, elsewhere, doesn't translate everywhere. Um, And that as Americans, really since the Industrial Revolution, we have had this idea that um, our homes are a sanctuary, that we leave our anger at the door um, when we get to our houses. We don't bring them into our family life. Um, And we've always gone to really great lengths to try to train anger out of our kids. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. I think it reflected my own childhood um, a lot. We there we weren't very comfortable with anger in the family I grew up in. Wasn't there a time too in history where um, 
if you considered if you said a cross word to your 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 spouse it was considered to be the mark of a bad relationship yes this is fascinating also uh, um in in peter and carol stern's book they um pull from a, a great number of um early american marriage manuals and ladies magazines and in these magazines you would find the most outrageous stories where you know wives would be warned not to yell at their husbands even once because their husbands could drop dead of an aneurysm on the spot and that's how powerful and how dangerous anger was and um you know, lots of ministers out there warning, don't you ever let anger into your house and your relationship because it will feel like it's invited and um, you will ruin your marriage. Um, there'll be no coming back for it from it if you get angry even once. Um, I, I think it's interesting because growing up, I, I got two messages. In the outside world, it was um, nice girls didn't get angry. Yes. But in my family, um, you either showed your anger or you didn't. So we were split evenly down the middle, and yeah. I was much more comfortable with the people in my family that show their anger. Yeah. And when people like withdraw, it's just it's awful. I mean, yes. I can't. I mean, I for me, I'd much rather have somebody yell at me and let's get it out and get it over with than to walk around having to mind read why somebody's not talking to you or mind read. Well, what did I say that that you know help me help me understand what I did? You know. Yeah. I think as a kid too. I mean, and and, and kids come up with all sorts of. Um, wild explanations for the, the way people around them are acting when no information is op- offered up from parents. And there's, I, I think there's probably the most hurtful thing as a kid is when someone ignores you, when someone, you, and you sense that someone's angry at you and they don't explain why. Um, but I can completely relate to that. I mean, in my family, I, there were, you know, two extremes, either the people who were blowing up frequently and quite a lot and doing a lot of blaming or the ones who were really stoic, kept all their feelings and emotions to themselves, went away dealt with it on their own, came back, and even if you referenced the fight, they would give you this blinking, blank-eyed look like they didn't know what you were talking about. And, um, you know, those were, you know, when I later in my life went to go talk to a therapist, and she would always say, Corin, those are your blueprints. And I realized that I, too, went through life fluctuating um, between those two extremes. I thought in any relationship, either one person is very explosive or the other person is the one who sucks it all up um, and puts on a happy face. And uh, so those are the two roles I played, um, because that's the, those were the two extremes that I saw. You know, my mom was the one who had, was very comfortable with her anger, maybe sometimes too comfortable, and my dad was the one um, who, who avoided it at all costs. Yeah, it's funny. We tend to marry the opposite, too, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but I really, it's, it was funny. So that was the idea that I formed in childhood, though. And, and sometimes we don't really um, revise those those childhood ideas until later. So even as an adult, I, I it never occurred to me that there was something in between. Um, when, when you're talking about anger, um, is there a time when anger is justified? Um, yeah, I think we do actually, it's funny you use that word, and um, there is, especially in um, the theological texts and religion, a lot of talk about justified anger, and of course in like Christianity, justified anger is uh, something like getting angry over something that would make God angry, which I don't know how anyone would be able to quite um, come to terms with that, but um, or figure out what would make God angry. But um, I think, you know, for me, I, I, what I ultimately um, came came to at the end of all of this research and personal exploration was this idea that anger is a natural, normal human emotion. It's there to be used in an emergency. We're never going to eradicate it from our personalities as humans completely. 
Um, so we have to understand it. We have to find a way to express it. And sometimes, yeah, p- sometimes people do find more understanding as a result of getting angry and having conflict. And sometimes it really does bring about change. I don't think that should be the goal. Um, I think the goal should just be we express our anger because it's authentic um, and it's human. Um, but sometimes good things can come out of it. And I really think it's important to um, be able to desensitize ourselves to the fact that when you're feeling angry, it's okay. It's what you do with it that's important. It's not the fact that you have that feeling because the feeling is neither right nor wrong. It's, it's what you do with it. If you're explosive and, you know, you belittle your, the person you're angry with or whatever, that's not good. But on the other hand, um, if you're angry about something, it can motivate you to do something to change circumstances or to change either for yourself or for the world or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of that linguistic research taught me that in other languages and other cultures, um, anger does have a more positive connotation, too. You know, it can be the force that keeps you awake all night working or hunting to provide for your family. Creativity comes from it. Life comes from it. Passion comes from it. And um, so, yeah, I think for for me, um, uh, to one, figure out how much of the well, what I noticed, I should say, is that when I'm really explosively angry, I'm never usually in the present. I'm either someone said something that taps into this ancient feelings of rejection that I felt from a ki- as a kid and had to do with my family and my parents. It's something I didn't deal with, um, and, and so the present situation reminds me of that, and it makes me much more angry than I probably ought to be. And it makes me probably not see the person for who they are, but rather, you know, cast them into the role of my mom and dad. Or, um, two, you know, I'm, I'm hung up on something that's going to happen in the future. I'm in traffic. I'm pissed off because I'm late for a meeting because I want to go home and see my family who I haven't seen all day. Um, and that's making me explosively angry. So I think for me now, when I'm really upset, um, I step back. I think how much of the, inf- the situation has to do um, with what's actually going on in that room, how much of my anger really um, belongs to the person I'm directing it at. Um, and also uh, to really, when I then try to communicate it, try not to blame them, but just to, um, you know, therapists always talk about it, is speaking from the eye, talk about how I'm hurt or upset and why. Um, in your journey, um you certainly evolved in fury. You you began by um, being fairly explosive with everyone around you, um, <laughs> and um, you evolved through the course of the of the memoir to to a much different place. Can can you share with our audience how that happened? Yeah, it was. Um, I should say the moment that um, this book became another memoir and became a personal story, and was the moment in my life when I could really. Um, see that I, I was someone who had always struggled with anger and didn't know what to do with it, um, especially now that I wasn't um, using alcohol to escape from it. So I had this um, really horrible um, breakup. When I was 26 years old, I'd fallen in love with this British singer-songwriter and moved to Britain to be closer to him. And um, in the process, subletted out my apartment in New York City. Um, but when I got to Britain, I, we, things fell apart so quickly. I'd never fought with this man, which was extraordinary, given that we'd been dating for a year, um, and uh, we had this uh, horrible um, fight. I, the next morning, I literally packed my bags in front of him and got back on the earliest flight back home to America and ended up crashing um, at my mom and dad's house for a month. 
um, because I had subletters at my apartment. So um, while I was there, I was so, like you said, I begin the book really explosively angry and just blowing up at all the wrong people. Um, but I, I can't yet see that they're the wrong people. And I can't yet see that the reason I'm as angry as I am with this boyfriend I've broken up with um, is because I'm really carrying around all these old theories that go back to my childhood. Um, when I, I thought as a kid it wasn't okay to express anger because I thought anger and love were incompatible and that if you got angry with anyone, you'd be cut out of their lives, um, which sometimes happened in my family. Um, my parents did disown a few relatives they'd had conflicts with. Um, and um, so that was my starting point. So in many respects, <clears throat> um, I think when, when, when we're explosive with anger, because I can certainly get there too, it's, um, it's, it's, it's feeling like, you know, um, feeling out of control and, yeah. and feeling invalidated, you know, and I think that that's really hard, you know. Um, and then I think the other thing that's hard, like for me as a woman, sometimes when I'm really angry I cry yeah. and it just makes it worse. You know, it just makes me feel so... I feel like what what a wimp, you know. I'm I'm crying. I'm really angry, but I'm crying. Um, Me too. Me too. That was what I always I I think um, especially for a long time when I was most angry, I, I would cry, um, and it seemed much more accessible to me than it did to yell or raise my voice or even just be assertive with the person who I was um, upset with. Um, but I really love that the way you say most of the time when you're angry, you feel invalidated because that, I think for me too that that's what triggers most of my anger is this feeling of I'm either being rejected, I'm being ignored, I'm not being seen for the person that I feel I am, um, um, and that's just maddening. Yeah, and I think, I think it's so unhealthy to keep anger in. Not, I think, not yeah. that being explosive is healthy, but I think getting it out is so important. Absolutely. I mean, you have, I think, too, and there are lots of... Um, studies all the time, ongoing studies in psychology and everything else about there are a lot of people out there who think holding anger in can actually make you sick, that, you know, there, when you're angry and you're repressing an emotion, there actually are, um, there's energy going through your body, your brain's sending out signals, um, you're, you're, there's a lot going on to try to keep your anger and your feelings down. Um, uh, but yeah, for, for me, um, I just couldn't be in the moment when I was repressing anger. I couldn't see people for who they were, and I really missed out on a lot of things. And we'll be right back after this next break with Corin Zelkis, and we'll be talking more about anger in her memoir, Fury. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll free number is 1 866 472 5792. That number again is 1 866 472 5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Corin Zelkis, and we're talking about her new book, Fury, which is a memoir, and it really is um, probably, what is it, a year, your journey in learning to deal with your your own anger as well as um, trying to make sense of the uh, culturally how we deal with anger and your family's use of anger. Was it a year or was it longer? It was. It was about um, a year, maybe two years. Two years. 
and before we went to break, you were sharing with folks how um, you'd had a breakup with your um, partner across the way in England, and you came yeah. home, you crashed at your parents' house, and you really just um, were practically, uh, I don't know, you, 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 I guess you were depressed. Um, yeah, deeply depressed. That's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I just... Um, Oh, I, I honestly just couldn't get up and get dressed. I couldn't write. Um, I couldn't work on this book. I, I didn't want to go anywhere or see anyone, and it felt just like the worst place in the world to be as emotional as I was um, because that, that just was never okay in my family growing up. It really set everyone on guard. It made everyone feel rejected. It made everyone get really defensive. Um, and uh, so that was the moment I really began to reflect on why I'd always been so afraid of anger and also almost to make the correlation that I'd never, uh, mortifyingly enough, made before, which was why I was a memoirist, where that, why I was even a writer. And I think so much of it had to do with the fact um, that because we didn't talk things out in my family, because we avoided subjects that were uncomfortable as a, a coping mechanism, I always just learned to go to a notebook and to put those experiences and those feelings down on paper. But uh, this real rift had developed whereby I could be really emotional in my writing and I could be really candid and forthright, and I couldn't do that in real life with the people around me. I think um, one of the things that was interesting is that you, um, you met your boyfriend online and that you spent a considerable amount of time writing back and forth loads like the whole first year and it was it was shocking really i mean i think we were we we would you know we probably wrote for each other for six months before we ever met up in real life and and they were from the very get-go really confiding letters always from both of our sides and uh, he was working on a second album that was giving him a lot of trouble and um, i was really struggling with this second book um, with what became fury and so we had this camaraderie and would go back and forth supporting each other, confiding in each other. When my sister eloped, and it was this um, really almost traumatic moment in my family, um, he was the one that I wrote to and that I talked to. Um, so eventually when we started dating, we would um, probably, when we were lucky, get to see each other for one week out of every month. There were a lot of uh, frequent flyer miles involved. Um, but we never, in them periods when we were apart from each other, would even speak on the phone. And I think we never really discussed it. Um, I think uh, we had anyone asked or thought that was strange. Um, we'd probably reference the expense involved. Um, but really, calling cards aren't that <laughs> expensive. And there's also free services like Skype. Um, but I think uh, it, it was probably, from my end, definitely, um, it, writing felt much more um, comfortable because I, I was much more defensive and much more stoic in my real life. Um, and also on the page, I could be a perfectionist about it, which so much of my anger is a result of trying to be a perfectionist and change scenarios and make them perfect. And when I can't, that's very frustrating. Um, so I could, you know, write and rewrite these notes to him um, and, and make them as perfect as they could be. I think one of the interesting things in your book, too, that a lot of us do, um, you know, in one moment you'll be very angry, and then the next moment you're um, you're almost um, giving the person permission to to behave the way that they behaved. I mean, you're trying to be both the reconciliator and the person who's angry. Yes. Yeah, hor- horrible and horrifying. Um, I know, and there's a, with some wonder. well, I think in retrospect, really wonderfully funny moments in Fury where I, um, with his permission, um, included a lot of our emails going back and forth, particularly after this breakup, um, when we have some 
from my end, epic exchanges where I'm really, on one hand, trying to make him see um, how horribly he made me felt and how difficult the breakup was and how um, terrified I'd been to be um, so far from home and that I really felt like I'd put myself on a limb moving to Britain to be closer to him. Um, and at the same time, I, I think I described this process where I was at home in my parents' house trying to write him this really scathing letter, which is how I felt. And I then would go back and rewrite it and edit it and like sort of strike out the parts that were too angry in my mind um, or too emotional and put in things that were almost very understand well falsely understanding and trying to uh, I don't know it was it was um, pretty phony um, but I definitely wanted to give the appearance of being much more compassionate and really deny my anger. How did you stay away from alcohol during this time? I think because I'd done so much writing on drinking and also then, you know, even the years after Smash, I was going around to high schools and to university and and talking about my horrible experiences with drinking um, and also the dangers of it just... I, I knew it wouldn't work for me if I went back and just drank myself into oblivion. Um, uh, it just seems like this this door had closed for me. Um, I did that said like go back and start chain smoking cigarettes, um, but that, that was the the extent of my substance abuse. Um, I what I really um, became aware of at a certain point, um, almost even before this horrible moment in my life, this terrible breakup, this family drama that. Um, ended up going on. When I was doing research for this book and thought it was going to be less of a personal journey, I um, uh, almost took myself on some field trips and went to this Buddhist center. I went to this anger management seminar. And both of them um, uh, forbid use of TV, Internet, phone calls, um, uh, which was the moment it occurred to me that instead of escaping through um, from anger through alcohol, um, in my own life, I was escaping from anger through work, through writing, through emailing, through entertainment. I, I think the other thing um, that's that's really interesting for um, for all of us is that when we look at um, you know even trying to be comfortable with our anger, we immediately need to feel um, we have to apologize for it, or we immediately need to feel like. I understand why you feel this way. I think yeah. I think there's a lot about our own self-worth and our self-esteem that gets tied up in in our anger. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, uh, and we were talking about during the break, sometimes it's really hard for us to get angry with people um, that we don't know that well, the people that we don't trust. Um, I sort of see that in my toddler now. She, she doesn't get angry with babysitters. She doesn't even get angry with her grandparents. It's <laughs> really just with me and her dad at the moment, um, that she can really tantrum or try to bite us or whatever it is she's doing in a fit of anger and um, just turn purple and stomp her feet. Um, and I, I feel like that in my, in my own life, too, even occasionally, because um, so much of uh, that, that childhood message is still there, that if you, if you get angry with someone, um, they're going to leave, um, which was you know, the, the thought that I always had and the inhibitor that really kept me um, from being honest with people when I was upset. And I, I still, even now, you know, even after writing this book, even after the event of the past few years, every so often that uh, message creeps in where I think, should I really bring this up at the moment? Is it just going to make things worse? Am I really going to upset the other person? Um, are they not going to like me anymore? Are they not going to be around me? Um, and I really have to, you know, find myself trying to be brave and, and realize that I'm, I have to be authentic and be real because anything else is just too phony. 
Oh, and we pay a price for it. Yes, yes, sometimes we do. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, some angry people still are um, judged pretty harshly in America. I mean, that said, reality TV thrives on anger, like the Real Housewives and Jersey Shore, especially we'd love to see women in the midst of a cat fight. Um, but it's not real anger. It's just sort of the fireworks. We don't, we don't, I think we don't see many images, um, you know, on TV and the media of people actually, the full life cycle of um, an argument whereby we see it crop up. We see how people talk about it without blaming each other or name-calling. Um, and we see that people can come back from it um, and see the way the dialogue really unfolds. Um, when you were in, you lived in France for a while, and they had a very different attitude about anger, didn't they? What was the advice the woman gave you? Yeah, I was um, living uh, in uh, the small town called Romaville, just outside Paris, um, with uh, an artist and um, two, actually two artists, and that's. Um, warehouse in this church that they'd converted into their painting studio in their apartment. And um, they, of course, being French and being artists, were very comfortable um, expressing anger. We'd hear these explosive 3 a.m. fights where, like, teacups would hit the walls, and you would hear French music blaring in the darkness and someone crying. And, like, you know, I didn't speak any French, but I quickly learned all the expletives in French because we heard them so often from our landlady and landlord. Um, but she would always say to me, Corin, it is essential to get angry, especially with the people that you love. Um, she actually thought um, she was a flight attendant who flew back and forth between Paris and Detroit um, quite often. And um, she thought the problem with Americans was that we didn't get angry enough. Um, you know, like France has such a rich, rich history of uh, demonstration and dissent. And um, by comparison, she would take these trips to Detroit and describe what she saw, um, saw as the zombie people, which she thought, as Americans, when we are upset, when we're angry, and um, we have a right to be in a time of economic downturn and, and everything else, um, that we blame ourselves, we become depressed, we eat too much, we eat the wrong kind of foods, we try to numb out um, with TV and entertainment, um, when we really ought to be taking the government to task, which is an interesting perspective. Very interesting perspective, um, considering the road rage and everything that we're experiencing. Um, but then, again, that's another... Um, kind of a really unhealthy way to deal with anger. Yeah. So, and we'll be right back for our final segment after the next commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. 
host, Simran Singh, will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network what it comes down to ladies is that defining line between been there done that and ain't going back baby yeah i've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers maybe even dolls babes darling sugar and sweetheart but i say that women are truly amazing join dr marlene for amazing women brains beauty and style every wednesday at 1 p.m pacific right here on the voice america women's radio network Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is One Hour at a Time, and I'm Mary Woods, and our guest today has been Corin Zelkis, and she her first book was called Smash, Story of a Drunken Girlhood, and her newest book is called Fury, and then this also is a memoir, and we've been talking about um, anger and how um, incapacitating it can be and also how healthy it can be, and um You've been telling us the story of um, this time in your life, which was very traumatic, but you almost had an, well, you didn't almost, you had an epiphany about your relationship with um, your boyfriend and and about both of yours kind of avoidance around um, anger and uh, authentic communication. Yeah. Was that the homeopathy? Uh, well, I did toy around with a lot of homeopathy after um, this breakup, and I, th- I, I think in, a, in part it was really helpful because um, I, because I had to take these emotional remedies, which you know, a friend was studying homeopathy. She sent me these um, little brown bottles, and um, there were four of them, and I was supposed to take one, you know, one when I was angry, one when I was um, sad and, and felt like I was experiencing grief, um, one when I was fearful and anxious. Um, and the other when I felt um, kind of gossipy and catty. And um, so for the first time in my life, every morning when I woke up, I had to really assess what I was feeling, and that was really foreign to me. In my life, I was much more comfortable um, paying attention to the people around me, trying to guess what they were feeling. Um, I didn't very often, I, you know, when I, I thought of my own feelings, I wanted to run in the opposite direction as fast as I could. So the idea um, that I had to identify what I was feeling every day and, and think about why was very new. Um, and so I think that was maybe the first step in terms of uh, uh, really understanding what was going on with me and how it had affected this relationship. Um, but I certainly, what I 
began to see was that I had very much um, cast my boyfriend or my ex-boyfriend in the role of my mother and really um, almost inserted some things into his mouth um, uh, that she had said in my youth, the things that had made me really mad and pissed off and that I'd never dealt with um, because it felt easier um, to rail against him, especially after we were broken up and I had already felt rejected, than it was to really go and and talk about the things that were bothering her, um, uh, that were bothering me about the way I was relating to my mom. Um, And once I really realized that I was using him, almost as the empty theater in which I was reenacting these furies and these dramas of my youth. Um, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I was horrified. And I really felt out like I'm, I'm, I missed out on a person who was um, extraordinary and who, who could have been a real um, partner to me. And he also had his own journey around um, being let down and, and being around angry women, too. He did, yeah. He'd had um, some really horrible um, um, previous relationships with women. Um, you know, he'd, he'd known women who had hit him when he was angry. He'd known women who'd really betrayed him in horrible ways. Um, and I think in a way that it also made him, he, we were both equally um, guarded and defensive. Um, he, he really hadn't been in a serious relationship for seven or eight years. Um, he was a musician, and he was almost touring entirely for seven or eight years. Um, and I think really felt um, kind of safe, uh, uh, just being a, a one-man show, really, just being pretty um, closed off and self-contained um, and, and not getting too close to anyone and not revealing too much, not being too expressive or too emotive. So what have you learned about coping with anger and dealing with anger? I think for me, um, I, well, I know now, I mean, anger is something I have to deal with every week, sometimes every day, um, and it crops up, and I have to, um, one, really understand and, and tap into, really go to what's making me angry and to look hard at it instead of um, running the other way or ignoring it because that just never worked for me. And I, I don't think it really works for anyone. You can't get rid of your anger completely. You can't ignore it. You can run from it as long as you can, but it just tends to um, pop out like, like that game, those snakes in a can, um, only we're exploding at the wrong people and at the wrong times, and they're not the ones we're really angry with. Um, you know, we're just yelling at the person who stepped on our street and our foot in the subway um, instead of yelling at our husband or our boss or our partner. Um, uh, so that was the, the beginning of it, just learning to be um, comfortable, to, to trust my emotions enough, to trust myself that I'm not going to go to pieces uh, when I feel angry or upset or rejected, that I can sit down, I can look at what's making me angry. Um, I can then, once I've separated, you know, what in the present is making me angry as opposed to the very distant past, the stuff that's still pissing me off about my childhood, I can journal about, I can go and talk about with a therapist, the stuff that's making me angry in the moment. Um, I can go to the person um, who I'm upset with and explain why I'm feeling hurt or rejected or invalidated. Um, and I can do it without name-calling, without um, withdrawing, without um, uh, any of those things. Throwing a water bottle? Yeah, exactly. I did have a... Uh, um, I was actually, yeah, very prone to throwing things when I was angry sometimes. I'm never at anyone. Um, but, yeah, like throwing the water bottle at the wall. Yeah. Um, so if you had one take-home message for young girls who may be listening to our show, what would it be? Uh, I think it would just be to uh, uh, trust that all people get angry and that it's natural, normal, human emotion, um, to just 
learn how to express it um, in a way um, that isn't hurtful, that isn't blaming. Um, I want girls to know that uh, it's just crap what you hear about the anger not being ladylike and everything else. Anger is human. Um, we just have to learn how to talk about it without uh, doing the kinds of things we see on TV, pulling each other's hair or gossiping or excluding someone, um, uh, that we can just one-on-one go and sit down and talk it over. Well, and we hear so much about bullying today, too. Yes. That, um, you know, I would tend to think that anger is driving a lot of that. I think definitely. Or yeah, I think, um, and there were so many new avenues we have for bullying. I'm sure it's the same kind it's always been, but now instead of, uh, you know, starting a vicious rumor about someone, you can go and do it on Facebook. You can post something very humiliating to them and uh, circulate it among everyone's cell phones within 0.2 seconds. Um, but I think for, especially for young girls, for teenagers, and sometimes for grown women, um, I, the thing I find really um, kind of disturbing and the thing I'd like to change um, is that I think because girls are sometimes scared of anger because they think it's unladylike um, or whatever else our parents and grandparents have taught us, um, don't feel comfortable expressing it one-on-one. We see a lot of girls sometimes um, ganging up on one girl, a group of girls, or excluding her, everything else. I I think I see it in girls sometimes much more than boys. Um, How can folks get a hold of you, Corin, if they want to learn more about your books or if they're interested in learning more about you? Yeah, I've got a website, which is K-O-R-E-N-Z-A-I-L-C-K-A-S.com. I'm also on um, Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Corin Z. Um, uh, you can definitely find me or write me at FuryMemoir at gmail.com. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's been um, great talking with you and, and uh, talking about anger because it's something we all can identify with. Oh, thank you so much, Mary. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. Have a good week, everybody. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.